Hi, you're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Esther Rosenfield. I'm here as always with Soren Howe. Today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 4, Full Faith and Credit. Directed by Ed Bianchi, <laughs> written by Ted Mann. Um, yeah, this is a... Uh, this is a uh, this is an interesting episode in a number of ways. It's nice to have Ed Bianchi back. I'll say that. Mm. Yeah, you and you can immediately tell. I mean, it's it's just like just like always. I mean, which, you know what's nice is the validation. <laughs> you know, and it's like it's like oh, yeah. this director's back, but then the thing doesn't happen. It's like a, a scientific principle, right? If the thing, <laughs> if the variable you think is doing something uh, doesn't consistently produce produce results, then it's not you know reproducible, um, and that's not real um but here it's like you know ed bianchi comes back immediately you get these shots <laughs> they're just it's so the cool. opening f- the opening frame of the episode is incredible yeah it's it's exactly it's beautiful it's this it's this crazy like tableau from inside the uh bella union this like really high angle uh shot it's it's yeah it's, it's immediately you're like oh right like he's a good director <laughs> yeah well so what's so weird about this first shot because it, it immediately stuck out to me and it occurred, I saw it and I was trying to figure out what's so weird about it. And I actually rewound after a couple of uh, shots later and I was like, ah, let me go back to that first shot because I, I figured out what it is. It's a security camera shot. Yeah. <laughs> it's a security camera shot in like Deadwood. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> um, that is the exact angle. And uh, that's, and I was thinking we've never, at first, my first thought was we've never seen this angle before. And I was like, why have we never seen this before? It's not an angle we haven't seen. Every angle you can shoot a room at basically has been done why do we why, why hasn't this been used in the show and it was like well security cameras it's not a thing so why would they mm-hmm. ever use this and uh but then he just did it he just did it he just for, he just did just it. to intro the episode because <laughs> why not well it's great because it also like it is so unusual and kind of it gives this kind of uncanny effect because you don't expect to see a set like this with characters dressed like this from in like a security camera context. Right, exactly. But it also like it suggests something about this shot, which is of Doc Cochran leaving the Bella Union, uh, this idea that he's been like caught on camera, that he's hiding because he's hiding something. He's going there at night specifically because uh, he doesn't want everyone to know that he's so sick. Right. So it does give this impression of like, oh, he's like being surveilled. Like we are, we are seeing him uh, because he's been caught doing something. Right, right, right. Not because something suspicious. He's being exactly, yeah. It's it's yeah. It's just like again, and it just it's it, the shots oh, like two seconds long, but it just in those two seconds, it's so clever. It's it's oh my god. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny because so like last week, I thought a lot more happened narratively. I thought it was extremely exciting i mean a lot happens here too kind of um there's a lot of promise of like a like a huge conflict and stuff that actually doesn't really happen but um despite being a bit subtler on the uh, narrative end it's got all these other these other fun elements that i think make it really exciting well it's a lot more standalone narratively i feel like it's a lot of stuff that like is really only I mean obviously like you say there's stuff like with Dan and Captain Turner and the stuff with Hostetler and Steve it's very clearly building to something next week um or or however many weeks I don't know I mean hopefully next week right. I hope they don't drag it out right, right. <laughs> but I yeah I, it is a lot of stuff that's sort of self-contained in a way that the first 3 episodes of the season kind of had this flow into each other that were all they were all connected um and part of that is that there's very little Hearst in this episode. That's true. As opposed to last week. That's true. Last week we talked about there was Hearst was in every single scene or he was related to every single scene. He's barely in this episode. 
Um, and even he's barely even referenced. The stories kind of have the main stories of the episode kind of have nothing to do with them. But also the idea that a Deadwood episode would have main stories, you know, that doesn't always happen. It's all it is. It is kind of like it's interesting because it's it's kind of like what Netflix promised um, streaming shows would be and then never really followed through on. Like remember when House of Cards was first getting teased and they were kind they would talk about like, oh, you know, we, we could just put this out as one single video file and you could stop and start wherever you wanted. Mm. But then nothing except for like Arrested Development really followed through on that. Um, it, it just that that promise was never really fulfilled. Deadwood kind of it is a very bingeable show because it does kind of it doesn't tend to segment itself like uh, into episodes that that neatly. You don't tend to have things that are just like, oh, well, this this is just in this episode. And then that's the, you know, there are scene, there are like individual scenes and subplots, obviously, but they are all part of kind of a grander whole. They all kind of flow uh, together and into each other. But this is an episode where sort of subplots like begin and you can tell that they are like multi-episode arcs Mm. and they are. I don't know. Yeah, it is just it just feels a little more self-contained than, than I'm used to on this show. And not that it's a bad thing, but I think it does. It does let Ed Bianchi maybe get a little more playful uh, directorially. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that. I mean, certainly you could watch this episode without having watched much else and understand the tension. That's it. I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, between like Hostetler and uh, Fields and uh, uh, Steve. Uh, that's certainly the case. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad they're separated in episodes because then we get to we get to pick them apart specifically in in their little and i like you know there's a lot of narrative uh rhythm to each episode um not that every you know there are good there are (laughs) there are better episodes than others right so there's some that are really standouts um but i think even when they're not the best episodes they still have you know there's some clever like double entendre with the subject of the episode, if that's like the title, um, or it's a sort of a riff on something that happened in a previous episode. Um, I'm, I'm thinking back to what I picked out, which, you know, I, I know we didn't necessarily agree on, but like, I thought the funeral wedding dichotomy of those two episodes at the end of season two, I think were um, really like intentionally done that way to make it really contrast with the, the black and the, the night and the daytime and then the white and the nighttime. And just the, the, it was like, a, it was very intentional and you could watch each of those episodes separately without any, any, you know, uh, lead up, but they do work as like a pair. And there's a lot of episodes that work as sort of pairs and things like that. But I also agree that this, because this show sort of ambles along um, with like spikes of, of like excitement and something particularly crazy. Um, but generally speaking, it does sort of just stop and start with the next day or with, um, you know, I wonder what happened when Al hears the news and then like the next episode, it's like Al hears the news (laughs) and it's like, you know, it just sort of progresses (laughs) from there, um, in a very logical way. But, uh, there's rarely the time jumps and the things that we've talked about, uh, that, that have happened, but don't happen nearly as frequently as, as they might on another And show. that are, that are notable when they happen, that are done like for a specific purpose. Right. Like, like, like the beginning of last episode. To almost break that a... cycle. I wonder if, in, exactly. I wonder if you could separate, how cool would it be to re-edit <laughs> Deadwood, not to change anything, but just to, instead of doing like one long episode, uh, to break it only when there's time jumps. That would be, <laughs> I would be curious to see. Yeah. Cause some are just like, one, like there's a time jump before and after. So it'd just be like one episode. 
And then some of them would be like six episodes long where it's just one day after the other. Yeah, I would be, I would be curious <laughs> to see that. I mean, it is, this show is, it's not like, it, it's not, it doesn't get playful with time mm. in the way that like, so I've been watching the third season of Twin Peaks again for my, for my Patreon. And like, that's a show, you I mean, talk about seasons that blend into each other. That is, you, you could watch it all edited together and you would have no idea where one episode starts and another begins. Right. Cause they just don't, it's just not, it's the cuts are very arbitrary, like at one hour. Um, but that's a show where it's like, well, time is kind of, uh, murky and you don't really know when things are happening in relation to each other deliberately. Whereas this show is very much like, no, like this episode is one day, right? It starts in the morning and it ends at night. <laughs> um, and well, the next episode, that, most of the time is the next, except day. for the episode where, is it the episode where, um, uh, uh, Seth's kid dies? Is that, is that the there one? is a time jump around there? I remember it was yeah. a, it was like a, it was a, a clever one because it, um, it synced up a bunch of events. It did the uh, what was it? Yeah. What was it called? Um, Dunkirk thing, and um, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and that that stretched sometimes so that it would like overlap with others, which isn't quite. I think I, I don't know. I haven't seen the third season of Twin Peaks or anything, but I just I imagine it's a bit different than that. But there have been the occasional instance. But generally speaking, um, you're right. This this show because I think it's going for more of a it has more of a well definitely has more of a sense of realism than you know a show that's completely fictional it's really it's grounded in some history and it's grounded in some other elements um that uh give it a bit more you know it's definitely played to be like um a realistic depiction it is it is more it's not so impressionistic as it is like like it's definitely a realism an exercise in realism and i think that's why they probably don't do as much of that. Um, but even despite that, we still see some cool, we definitely see cool visual work and uh, we do occasionally get some, some play with time and, um, and you get those particularly bizarre things with the best thing they do, which is recasting old actors as new characters, which yeah. is awesome. Uh, and I t- <laughs> it turns out, by the way, I think um, it's not Blazanov. Who's the guy who runs the new hotel? Oh, that's right. Someone mentioned this. Um, I don't remember. Um, Shoot. But right, he's he was in the first a, season. Yeah. He was uh, somebody who gets, I guess, conned out of their their um, their uh, their mine or their claim or something like that. It's like a very it, with Al. I think it's it's early on, but basically that actor comes back as a completely different character. Obviously, uh, where he's running that little hotel that Joni was was staying at. So. Um, yeah, so like it just it happens on the show. It's it's a funny it's a funny uh, little twist. And another thing that's it's not quite like that because we've never really seen him on screen. But the guy who plays Captain Turner, uh, Alan Graf, uh, someone pointed out, and this is this is in fact true. He's a stunt coordinator and has done like stunts on loads of shows for a long time. Really? Um, and they just made him a character, <laughs> but he was not. He's not an actor. He does um, stunt coordination on this show and on others. And he's which I guess sort of foreshadows that there might be a reason they cast him in that role because he hasn't done anything yet, but you know. Oh, well, his Wikipedia page says he's primarily known as a football player. Okay. So if, yeah, if they need him to get rough and tumble. Well, uh, there you go. So yeah, he's been a stunt coordinator and he, um, I think, and then later, like he was a second director. I think that was his new thing as he was on a second uh, director on a couple of things, but um, yeah, so that's his, his main, his main focus is not actually acting at all. Um, so he's, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I like when they repurpose people. I think it's a cool, it's a cool, um, 
especially when they bring him in front of the camera. I don't think David Mills is going to show up at any point. But, uh, you know. So yeah, what do we? Uh, what do we? What have we got this episode? We'll, we'll talk about some of the technical things that happen in this episode. There's some incredible shots, some really cool framing and and ideas that happen uh, throughout as well. Um, that I, I prefaced uh, Esther with in the beginning uh, before we started recording. So we'll, we'll talk about that as we go. But yeah. Uh, what I mean, what's interesting about this episode is that a lot of Deadwood episodes are like, there's a lot of, like we talk about, we say this all the time. There's a lot of little things, right? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of like tiny little scenes and sometimes we don't get to them all. This episode, really not. There's kind of like two or three big things and there's not a lot of like, uh, there's not a lot of crumbs, I guess I would call them, just like tiny True. little moments. True. Yeah, like one scene that pushes a you know a storyline ahead. There's, there's not a lot of that. Uh, it's mostly about like I would say the closest that you come to that is um, Jane and Joni, but even then, that is a yeah. follow on from her, from a main plot line, which is her and 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 Langrish coming to a, a deal about what to do with exactly. Yeah. So it's still connected, right? There's not really a. It's not like the um, the scene that comes to mind most obviously because they did this I think in at least two or three episodes was Miss um, Isringhausen and uh, Adams where, yeah. where they would just stick oh, that yeah. they would just stick that scene into each of those episodes until they like <laughs> tied off that 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 narrative because um, it wasn't really connected to much else. Um, it was like on a higher level. It was eventually, but yeah, but, but like yeah. on the on the ground floor, it wasn't really connected to anything. So yeah. Um, so yeah, so the, we have the bank opening, I would say. We have the Chesame, and we have, I guess, the brewing confrontation between Al and Hearst. Well, Stephen Hostetler. Oh, Stephen Hostetler, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, that's the main thing. That's the main thing. And then you have the, I guess, yeah, nothing really happens with Alan and Hearst per se, but it is, uh, I think, a significant line going on in the background. Well, I think the main thing is the last scene, which we probably shouldn't start with, but... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a lot to say about that. Um... I would love to talk about uh, uh, the stuff with Hostetler coming back. Yeah, I do think that's kind of the main thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think there's a lot that goes down that we should that we should dig into for sure. So yeah, so uh, Hostetler finally again. This is again kind of playing with time. I don't remember when he and Fields left at the end, but it was before the end of last season. Obviously. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it was when the it was whenever um, uh, uh, William died. So it was a couple episodes before the end of last yeah, season, yeah. and now they're and now it takes. I like that, like it takes them a couple episodes to finally come back. It was the same thing with Wu last week. Like the season doesn't start with Wu immediately being back, even though there's been a time skip. Yeah, they do say they're at still, some point it was something like it's like a few months, six months, something like that. So it's been a while, um, and yeah. we did see there was a, a towards the end of last season there was a, a one of those rare shots outside of Deadwood where um, Hostetler and Fields are talking about what to do. Like, are we going back to the town? Are we not? Are we going to Oregon? And Fields is like, let's just go to Oregon. Who cares? And uh, Hostetler's like, no, we have to get the horse. If we get the horse and bring it back, that's the right thing to do. And uh, Fields is like, that is not, that is against every survival instinct in my body. But uh, I guess he, the what we learn here is that he's he caved to that um, and also that he tried to forewarn. He sent a letter to Jane, which I thought was also really interesting, or a telegram. Yeah. Um, it got there a little late, but what can you do? Yeah, that 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 that's a funny detail that made me think about just the nature of communication in this time period. That you could send a letter to someone like, 
uh, trying to warn them of something. But of course, like the letter is not going to move any faster than you are, right? Well, in this it's case, it was a telegram. Same method of transportation. Well, exa- well, exactly. But communication is still so slow yep. that you're like, it's not like sending someone a text where you know they're yep. immediately going to get yeah, it sure. and you can send it an hour ahead of time or however long ahead of time that you want. It's like you, at any method of communication you want, you're running the risk that they're not going to get it until maybe after you get there. Exactly. Um, yeah. and, 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 and I like that Jane is immediately distrustful of Blazanov never interacted. I don't think these two characters, um, <laughs> and I love that his response is, uh, please don't, uh, please do not kill me. I am only messenger, which is a good riff on the, on the, uh, idiom. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so she's freaking out. Like, what are we going to do? It's I, the whole responsibility of this situation falls on me. And as she's catastrophizing with Charlie, uh, they just ride into camp. So mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of relieves that whole tension uh, immediately. And then adds whole new tension because it is deeply concerning that they've returned to camp. Um, you know, we, we've seen what's happened in the past with these, these two, um, and how the camp has reacted to them, particularly Steve. And uh, yeah, just and and we've seen how Steve has made it very clear he will not give up the livery without a fight. So um, yeah, it's well. What it's I think bad. is really really interesting about the way that they about the way that this all develops is that we see Hostetler and Steve like lock eyes from across the thoroughfare, but we don't see their initial confrontation. All like which I when they cut away from that, I was like, well, surely they're gonna like cut back to that, which is something Deadwood never does. If they cut away from a scene, unless they're like doing the intercutting we talked about last season, um, usually that scene's over. That's it. Yeah, and and we're skipping to something else. So the fact that they kind of um, that the initial confrontation is absent is really curious because what it does is it is it leaves us only with both of their. Uh, stories about how it went, which are completely different, of course. Right. So we're kind of left like the first we hear from Steve, who was like, oh, and he, you know, he didn't care about the kid being killed and he just wanted his his livery back. And, you know, and then, of course, we hear from Hostetler like, well, no, I, I took responsibility for the kid, but he wasn't having any of it. So I think, you know, obviously, I, <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious whose version of events is going to be more accurate right. in this case. But I do like that. I, I think it is a it complicates the writing in a cool way to not show it to us, to just have these, to just have us hear these two versions of it and to have us make the conscious decision of who to trust rather than just telling us what happened. But what I also like, you know, it's, um, there's a, there's another trope that this could fall into that is, I'm sure it has a name. I don't care, but, uh, there, (laughs) there's a, (laughs) a, a trope that I, that I've observed that people have observed in, in media of, um, uh, of, uh, of character of, of scenarios like this where they're dealing with issues of racism and 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 uh, and that sort of um, topic where you can uh, overcorrect you know the writing for the character who's like for example black in this case you could really make Hostetler yep. this um, I'm with you like this like overly you know uh, this angelic yeah, like a, character who like just, a, it's a really cloying right yeah. right it's like oh if we, like we need to show off how like 
how we're on the right side of yeah. it. So we're so the so the black character is going to be this perfect flawless angel, yeah. and the ra- and, and he's going to be sm- and he's going to be smarter than everyone else too. And also he's going to be gonna more successful. Them, yeah. He's going to be he's going to be completely emotionally under control, right. and he's just going to be you know so put upon. And you know, not that there's anything redeeming about Steve really at all, no. except for the fact that he did look after the animals. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, I, that's 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 worth mentioning. So, but it's not like I don't think the show is trying to say like, oh, there's, uh, you know, they're they're both kind of shades of gray. Like, clearly, Hostetler is a better person. Oh, for than sure, Steve is one hundred percent. You know, no question. But it doesn't. You're right that the right is this, why Deadwood's so good. It does not write Hostetler as this like, as this archetype of like the 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 uh and and i i think there is a term for it that i can't think of right now but yeah like the angelic black character the the flawless black character who is who is the victim of racism because hostetler even though he is a good person really he lets his emotions get the better of him just like steve does and i, and I would say even he more is, he is pig, you know he is pig-headed he is but even more specifically he is, he's proud right he's too damn proud, proud yeah. and stubborn yep. to let uh, you know, they, you know, at first when he's like, I'm not signing until Steve signs, and you're like, well, that's fair. Steve is very likely to just, you know, uh, turn on a dime, especially if he's drunk, um, and decide that he's not going to do this. Um, but we also see that Hostetler, uh, and we hear later from Seth's accounting to Martha that, uh, they both refused, even when they had the, the, the stupid, watches synced up and they were in separate places <laughs> they were still checking to see which one was slightly faster so that the other one wouldn't have to you know would sign first and like it's just this this ego matching but it it, it, it doesn't in again it does not put hostetler and and steve on the same level they are not in any way and i don't think the show ever no, yeah. suggested let's let's be clear <laughs> but it does put it does give hostetler like a real sense of humanity he's like an actual human person yeah and i think that, he's, that he's is a real the person the writing is that it's extremely good because like i said as we said it could have fallen into that that trap and it didn't so i thought that was um i was really i was impressed with that because I, I thought you know and also i think it gives us probably the best we've seen a lot of hostetler in different capacities but they've been in kind of often absurd situations and this is kind of absurd but not really it's kind of a normal thing and and you really get a feel for exactly who he is and how even in this context where he's lucky he's really lucky that seth was on his side and he was lucky that steve didn't immediately try and kill him um or or you know rouse up a mob or whatever uh he's still defiant and still proud and i think that that's i mean the key the key moment of this episode is when he's when he goes to meet with fields near the end of the episode and he turns his back. He doesn't see, he doesn't do the thing where he stands proud and he takes it like, like those kind of characters oh, gosh, we talk yeah. about. He turns his back on him and he doesn't just say, fuck you, Steve. He says, fuck you, everybody. Right. Like everyone to Seth, all of you, all of you are responsible for this. You know, all of you go to hell because for putting me in this position. Right. And it's like, yeah, that is again, and we've seen how where his pride, uh, his pride almost led him to kill himself last season. Right. Right. Like that's where that's where his head is at. He is so proud that he would rather kill himself than be than be lynched. Um, so, yeah, just the notion of this guy who's like who is so goddamn stubborn. <laughs> um, and then that, and that this, show, this is a show, you know, there's not a lot of black characters on the show, but th- this is a show that allows black characters to have the same flaws that you would not blink twice if a white character had. 
Right. That it's that it doesn't need to be so so like cloying. And I and I think just so that we're we're clear here because I think um it, it might get lost in how we're talking about this. The um it's historical black characters I think are often fall into this. I think it's less often although it certainly does happen in like modern I think it's it's gotten a lot better in a lot of uh, modern um, or or it's not modern but I mean uh, shows or movies about contemporary times where they try and really make quite well written characters of various backgrounds etc that that's quite common but when you're we have these sort of dumb caricatures in our minds of of uh, of characters who from from throughout like media history that have been used to portray like what does uh, a black person in the late 1800s uh, in a frontier town look like? And it's probably pretty simplistic because, you know, it takes some thought to really, you know, uh, to, to, to develop those characters. And I don't think a lot of, uh, a lot of historical dramas just sort of rest on, on, you know, well-worn, you know, uh, archetypes and things like that. And that's, so it's, it's specifically how, you know, how you portray, for example, Native Americans, something we have not seen on this show at all, by the way. We've seen Native Americans, and it's, that was really, it was a, I, I liked those scenes, but we didn't, like, learn anything really about the Native American uh side of the you know culture and thoughts and the rest of it we've never learned that it's something that this show has not engaged with and may not engage with before the end of maybe it does in the movie who knows but so we haven't seen that aspect of it but again you get those some those really uh like the the noble savage stereotype and all these other sort of really dumb things that uh permeate like old westerns and things like that and and so it, it, it what this is doing is pushing back against those historical tropes I, I think just to be clear yeah and i mean you see this now with like you know something i'm very attuned to obviously is you see this with you see this with trans characters all the time these days at the show we'll have one trans character and and they'll be like again just like the perfect angel the representation of innocence uh who then of course must be you know ruined and defiled as some sort of commentary on the nature of the world because that's awesome <laughs> um but yeah i mean this is this is just how writers like to project. This is not a show that is concerned with projecting progressivism, I think is, is what we're saying. Mm. Whereas, and not that it's not a progressive show. I think it is in a number of ways, but it is not. It's not glee. It is not. It's not glee. <laughs> and and thank, thank God it's not. Thank God anything is not, is not glee, but it is not like, oh God. you know, it, it's, it's not trying to perform. Uh, a certain type of progressivism in a way that a lot of really obnoxious shows will like Glee will. Yeah. <laughs> um, or just trying to kind of show off how, how forward thinking it is. Deadwood can just be a, be a well-written show and be well-written for a number of different types of characters. And that is what actual progressivism looks like. Yeah. You know, like the way that the show writes female characters is what good female character writing is. It is not the strong female character that you and I talk about all the right. time. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, so what you're saying is, you want to start a Glee cast? <laughs> I would, I would delete all my accounts. <laughs> it just in shame, earth. in shame. <laughs> scorched earth. No, I can't. I can't do I it. Would, I can't put myself through that. Not again. I would. I oh well, yeah. I mean, I made it like a season and a half, and then I was like, yeah, yeah I'm done. This is. I think I got like three or. F- We're not going to talk about Glee. We're not doing it. <laughs> Amazing. I won't let myself. Amazing. 
Um, Jane Lynch is still great, though. Anyway, all right. So, sure. um, where uh, where do we go next? Um, so, well, I do want to point out one thing, because there is one, one thing that I did roll my eyes at in this episode. Yeah, sure. Because there's one... It starts with a great line, a fantastic line, which is, what's Steve the Drunk's last name? Oh, right. That's really funny. But then someone says, it's Fields. And it's like, uh, come on. Are you serious? <laughs> well, I don't I don't know if the implication is that, is it, are you saying that it's suggesting that he's... Not that they're literally related, but just it's like, oh, see, it's it's like the it's like the Martha thing from Batman versus Superman. It's like, see, you you have something in common. You have common. Oh, between you. oh, yeah, no, 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 no. I wouldn't read it that way at all. Remember, you know, uh, again, if you see black characters in this show, there, there's not going to be a lot of like recent African immigrants, right? These oh. are. The, the implication you know there is that I see, I see, I see. Oh, wow. One I family owned another, and and I should also point out that it's not that's, necessarily. You know what? I take case. it back. That's that's really really clever. <laughs> that's really good writing. Jesus, I didn't pick up on that at all. I think that's really smart. I think it's not meant to say that his family did, but it would be not that a family no, like does, his family. It would, evokes yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's oh my god. Hey, Soren, this show is really. Good. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because I actually had seen earlier, um, I think I maybe even mentioned on an earlier podcast that somebody had asked, are they related? And I was like, and it was reference to this episode, but we hadn't gotten here yet, that the that Steve's last name was also Fields. And um, I think that question was also asked quite innocently um, in the same sort of way where it was like, are they related? Why would they say that? That's so weird. <laughs> um, and I think it's not supposed to be a good thing. But um, yeah, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, and we don't get a lot of fields in this episode. It's sort of just him freaking out in the background, wondering if they're all going to die. But he does stick around. He doesn't He doesn't peace out. So I thought that was... Uh, yeah. It certainly says something about him. Um, I also wanted to just point out this one shot of uh, when It's incredible. Um, I think it is when when uh, Hostetler and Fields see Steve for the first time. Um, it is. It's the one you're, yeah, it is. Yeah, so so Hostetler and Fields walk by the livery, and the sh- they just, the camera, or, or Ed Bianchi, whatever, allows them to walk exactly into frame so that um, Hostetler is in a slightly higher sort of wooden frame in the, uh, in the, the stable, and Fields is a little bit lower down, but they're perfectly framed. He likes to frame people. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and also, you know, they are framed. So there you go. Um, for this, uh, for this, for this, uh, this murder. And yeah, and it's just so, you know, what I love about this story of them being held accountable first for the, uh, well, or, or potentially being held accountable for the, the, the death of this child. Um, and then also, uh, for, for abandoning the livery, it's like they're damned if they do, they damned if they don't. If they had stayed, they would have probably been murdered. And by leaving, oh, you've abandoned your, well, now who's, you know, you're just not responsible. And it's like, it's just the classic Catch-22 that's put, you know, that that has carried over to today with the same sort of phenomenon, uh, this white-black phenomenon where you have, uh, uh, you know, it's like, well, if you do one thing, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're, contributing to this stereotype but you do another thing you're like there's no way out and you're sort of boxed in and the whole thing is is built in um the context of uh like a racial hierarchy right and it's just 
this is like a microcosm of that in a very particular weird context that we obviously wouldn't really particularly be related to us, but um, like to today, because you know what horse, you know, goes running wild, but it's the same sort of phenomenon where, you know, they have no options and they try and do the literal best possible thing. And they're still taking their life into their hands by coming back to the camp as field points out fields points out. And I think that that's, that's also like a philosophical question that the two of them, each of each of these two characters represent where fields is like, I know what the system is. The system is we will lose. Let's not participate in the system. Let's just peace out. And Hostetler's like, no, we have to follow the system because that's the honorable thing to do. And Fields is like, all right, but if you want to live, though, you're going to want to not do that. So let's just not... The system will never work for us. And in this case, because Seth is a particular kind of person who apparently is not following laws, as we've learned, but just what he wants um has (laughs) sided with them but he could just as easily have been a steve type character well that's the thing you know when he when hostetler surrenders to seth it is again that that pride right it's him saying look i will i will take responsibility and if you decide i have to die then fine but this is my choice now i have made it my choice by surrendering to you and because yeah because seth is ultimately a good person and you know at least by this time period standards, not a racist, you know, um, maybe, maybe if we, maybe he would say certain things today that we wouldn't say. Sure. I'll say he's uh, one, one of the few characters on Who the knows? show who hasn't, he wasn't dropped the, uh, the N-bomb, so, you know. That's true. And his, his best friend's a Jew, so he is very, very clearly, true. he's up on it. He's a good guy. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, like, he is, Hostetler kind of lucks out, but I think that I think he does, I don't think he does, says what he says to Seth expecting that Seth will do what he does. I don't think he surrenders with the expectation, I don't think he surrenders with the expectation that Seth will forgive him. Mm. I think he is completely prepared to go to his death, but on his own terms. I think so too. I think so too. And I think Fields sees, I mean, he goes along with this, but clearly his, his feeling is, why would we play their game if we're just going to get the, the shit end of the stick every time. Well, and the other important thing to note here is that they didn't know until they came, until that moment that William right, died. That's true. That's true. And if they had, maybe they would have, because when they heard that, they were probably like, oh, we're definitely, this is definitely going to yeah. be badly. That's, that's a really important thing to note because yeah, they came back just, uh, just thinking for all they know, he was just injured. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, we got a lot of Alma this episode. Again, another uh, another shift for Alma. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I forgot all this about the bank. You know, it's funny. Like every time we've seen like Trixie and Saul for the last like six episodes, it's all been her learning the numbers and stuff. But I, I it completely slipped my mind that Alma was opening a bank. Like I, I that had, well, that had just yeah, vanished from my brain. She offered to. I mean, it was really Saul who was. And they'd already started sort of running the bank, but now this is the official opening because now Alma's offered to back it. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk about that in a minute. I, it, I, you reminded me of something when you said Saul, though. I love when Seth goes to Saul to yes, to, yes, yes, to yes. ask about the price of delivery um, because it's so fu- it's so funny. He shows up. He's like, "What's the price of delivery?" And he's like, "Well, I will have to figure it out." He's like, "I just need a number now," and he's like. 1200 and then Seth just like <laughs> glides out of the thing he just like turns his head and just like he's on a, on a on a conveyor belt just drifts out of the place like he's just and it's so <laughs> emblematic of his like 
I'm an arrow that just goes in the direction of the of task. What is task must do task. <laughs> and there's this amazing other scene where he where one won't sign and the other uh like the one won't sign before the other one. This is the scene, yeah. And he's just standing there, staring off into space because he's like, can't do task, don't know what to do, and like <laughs> Saul's like, have them both sign at the same time, and he's like that accomplishes task and then he just leaves <laughs> and i'm like seth is like not very bright but he just it's very singular well i like that <laughs> it's like he it's like he went to stand there because he was hoping saul would have the solution but he, he like there's something in him that just can't ask for help <laughs> that's so like maybe if i just stand here and stare into space saul will figure it out for me. <laughs> it's so weird but i i love it because it's again Seth is one of the most consistent characters on the show. <laughs> I wouldn't say there's much of an evolution there, but uh, you know, no. he's he's pretty much. But he's so yeah, he's he's just. And I mean, at this point in the series, they have such a clear grasp on him. Oh yeah, they just like that. You don't have to really like build him out anymore. It's just like, oh, we know who this guy is. We can just have him act in the particular just way. Point and, and him Timothy at Oliphant. <laughs> Timothy Oliphant will just like grit his teeth and squint until it'll be perfect. <laughs> it's great. Um, so yeah, actually the first, um, uh, time we see this bank in the beginning, I love it. It's, uh, uh, we see the bank sign that gets revealed by Alma. Um, and then, uh, Al's looking and, and, and there's this cool shot of Al in profile looking at it. Um, and he's out of focus and the, and the, um, the bank signs in focus. And then he like turns towards the camera. It's such a cool shot. Cause it totally, it was a great, it's a great way to shift. Like this is what's happening now. Um, on that part of the, you know, in that part of the camp. And now we're going to go to Al and it's all in this very smooth transition from one part of camp to another, as we're learning about. And, and he, and he pivots to Hearst and that initial interaction with Hearst and his henchmen. So it's just, a, I, I like the way that, that, that whole smooth motion works. I think it's funny that we see like Merrick and EB and Harry Manning, like first in line at the bank's open. The funniest thing is that Harry Manning's there because this is one of the few little bits in this episode. Uh, Tom Nuttall basically says, accuses him of skipping out on work to go out and like make appearances yep. for his campaign. Yep, yep, yep. And presumably this is one of those things. He's like, well, I have to be seen at the bank opening so that people will know, you know, recognize me as a candidate and as a, as a figure of this town. Right. <laughs> no one knows who you are except for Dolly. Apparently, I mean, we didn't until he was like, I'm Harry Manning. I'm running for, and you're like, Oh, this, this guy. Cool. <laughs> Um, yeah, he has a kind of a fun relationship with Tom Nuttall. Tom Nuttall kind of is their like scene a, is adorable. I love that scene. He's kind of like um, a like a mentory type character, and then later he's he's like protecting him when he's worried Steve's gonna go off and he gets the gun. Um, he's like, go sit over there because he doesn't want him to be involved in whatever goes down. And also, famously, this is you know Tom Nuttall's bar is where a lot of people have died. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so he's like, "You go over there because this is going to be bad." But he doesn't say it in so much in so many words. And and yeah, and he offers to fund this. He he says basically, "You're the only reason you're doing this is so you can have a fire truck. So why don't we just <laughs> get a fire That's truck?" Such a funny way of putting it. Because they're they're using this like you know you just want to be the fire marshal and and why don't and wagon but just then when you put it like that just this adult man who just all he wants in the world is a fire truck exactly it's and just and so funny to me and I also love when he has this little moment because he he um like Tom Nuttall like walks towards the camera it's such a weird yes. scene oh, it's so he like walks out of the mid range yeah 
and then into close up. Yeah, into close up. Like, and and uh, yeah, and he starts. But like he walks out of frame first, and then he comes back in 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 the close up. It's so oh my god, it's so. Cool. And says he's gonna you know he wants two fire hats. He says get two fire hats because he also wants a fire hat. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh it's cute, and I think maybe that means Harry Manning just isn't gonna be running for sheriff. I mean, he was never gonna be sheriff. Obviously, Bullock's gonna be sheriff, but um, I think they've taken that. <laughs> Anybody who was hoping for Harry Manning, uh, I think that's uh, that's over. Because um, all he wants to do is be fire marshal, so why not? Um, so yeah, the bank. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else at the bank that was uh, particularly. Well, there's well, this very cute scene where Ellsworth gets very worked up defending Alma. Oh yeah, um, that was sweet. That's adorable. It is. Yeah. It is sweet. I will say that it is a bit weird because we just came off of last episode where the tensions between them were quite high, and then this episode kind of just is a different thing altogether where like almost happily opening her bank and that's great and then Ellsworth defends her in this instance and that's great but like last episode they were it was really fraught <laughs> and now yeah. it's not now obviously we get these very strong implications that uh you know there's this <laughs> there's so many references in this episode to um how not real her marriage is to Ellsworth, where she's like, "Yes, oh, please say." She references, it. Exactly so she references her her um uh in one instance when uh, Leon is hitting on her, which is also like, "Ew, why? Why is this happening?" <laughs> um, Leon's hitting on her, and she's like, "What does it say on my nameplate?" And then uh, I think that's when Seth like walks in or something, and just like completely reiterates the point that there is no strong relationship there at all like the marriage is kind mm-hmm. of a sham so like well to keep leon away it's i'm mrs ellsworth but if seth walks in uh suddenly i'm uh, i don't know i don't know what i am um well the best one is when ellsworth brings her right an apple right and she says and she says did you mistake me for mrs bullock yeah and then they just everyone looks at <laughs> wow. each other awkwardly and you're like oh my gosh <laughs> and you can see on yeah. her i mean you know molly parker's great and she just goes oh i can't believe i said that <laughs> And Ellsworth just sort of takes it in stride, but it is yeah. awkward. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of these illusions. Now, I, tell me this. Do you think that Alma is A, into Leon, or B, just back on drugs? Because there was some hint earlier that she she threw out her drugs, but maybe she's back on them. I don't know. Um, but we do know that Leon mm. is a big drug dope fiend person. That is part of his, what's well, really his own shtick, but so far so that's all we know about him um or both or neither um my takeaway was definitely that there is sort of an implication that she's that she's back on on dope um such a dumb way of saying it but that's what they say on the show um (laughs) but no yeah that that's definitely what i took away from i I mean the other thing is maybe that she's being kind of beckoned to some meeting with uh with sai that we but there's no real indication that they would need to well Although we do have this scene where Hearst says to Sai and Al, like, I'm going to be in and out, basically. You need to look after my interests. And one of his big interests, obviously, is securing her claim. Right. So it could be that Sai is kind of calling her over in the interest of getting control of the claim for could Hearst. Be. Could be, actually. That, that, that wouldn't be such a shock. I mean, we've never seen Leon interact with Alma before. And he seems to be out of the loop that there was a wedding that everyone in the entire town was like <laughs> attended. Uh, but you know, he's uh, out of it a lot. So, um, 
Yeah, no, I, I think uh, they leave it deliberately vague, and I guess we'll, we'll have to see. But it's so sad, because Ellsworth is, like, really trying. <laughs> yeah. He's really trying, and it's just not really happening. Um, and he seems really into the idea of her being, uh, he's like, she's a financial powerhouse. And it's like, yeah, yeah. And, and that's actually, you know, for the time, probably quite a statement, you know, that he's he's into that. As opposed to expecting her to be a diminutive, like, housewife character. So, um, so there's that. But, yeah, I think that this is going to end badly. Yeah, it's, there's, when, when, when you're getting called over by Leon, there's really no good reason that could be happening. Yeah, really no good reason. Um, on that Leon note, we should probably mention Con Stapleton super quickly. But, um, I just want to say, at the bank opening, uh, Richardson was in a hat, and I thought that was really funny. Um. That that's all. I didn't even see. Oh that. yeah, oh, he's in the great. very beginning. You should look up that that's the when they're all standing outside. There's Richardson sort of standing there in like a suit with a hat next to um, uh, Farnham. I didn't recognize him at first. I was like, oh, that's Richardson. <laughs> look at that. Um, so yeah, what what did you think about these weird Con Stapleton scenes? <laughs> Bizarre. It's, again, it's like, what is he? Do we? What is happening? Do we know the woman's Why? name? Right? She's she's with Langrish, but I don't. I... In the HBO summary. I just saw this. She's credited as Oh, wait. It's it's in here. Claudia. Claudia. She's one of yeah, she's one of like, you know, yeah, like you say, she's with Lang Grease. She's like an actress in his company. Okay. Um so with Claudia then. Uh, what a stupid! I'm sorry. I just want, <laughs> just want to reiterate. It's just the whole. There's a subplot in this episode that is just Con Stapleton gets laid. That's it. That's what happens. And it, it's just a, what a bizarre it, little aside. It is weird. However, so I'm connecting dots here that I don't know if they're going to lead anywhere. The last episode, there was an allusion made to, um, the fact that. Claudia, she was she made some lewd comment to Langrish, who does not seem interested. Let's put it that way, um, and uh, and about how that she basically she was like, I'm not getting laid, and this sucks. And then this episode, she um, does get laid, but it's like extremely disappointing, and she almost seems to be upset with herself for lowering herself to a like a Con Stapleton level, um, and also. You know, I love his line at the end where he's like, "Give me a couple of days and we could do it again." And it's like <laughs> that's his uh, his uh, his recoil. Um, so you know, I think uh, and just like when she leaves the room and Langrish realizes what ha- what's happened yeah. and his look is like, "But what?" <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun. It's like it's like this is a very funny show, but it's rarely like outwardly comedic in that way. <laughs> or it's like a sitcom, like you could put a laugh track under it. Yeah. Well, what's so funny about that is that there's this great um, match cut between when Charlie's trying, we'll talk about Joni, but when Charlie's trying to negotiate what's going on with Joni and um, uh, the schoolhouse and all that, he's he walks away from Seth after getting his okay in in as like a proxy for Martha. Uh, and then it cuts to Langrish in a match cut. Um, and the only point of cutting to Langrish in the scene is so that he can see uh, Claudia leaving Constable this room. That's the whole like scope of why this scene happens. But it's like it's 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 introduced with this very obvious film technique. And I just find it so funny to like put all this energy into these 
small moments. It, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just strange. It's a strange choice, but you know, whatever. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, you want to talk about Langreesh now and and Joni? Yeah, sure. Uh, they get a second chance so, yeah. to uh, to meet finally. Um, in a in a in a slightly different way. Yeah. So basically, Langreesh wants to buy the Shazami to make it into a theater. Um, the idea of building a theater in Deadwood is, is, is also really amusing to me. Like of all the things, like you don't think of Deadwood as a place that like happiness, it might, it, it might need a, <laughs> it might need a bank. It might need a livery. It might need a sheriff's station. I don't know that there's a lot of demand for like <laughs> a theater. Um, but I mean, he's, he, he must know what he's doing. He's clearly a very canny, canny gentleman. Um, but basically, Joni is. I, I like her kind of conflict in this episode, where she is clearly drawn, you know, like she's clearly very attached to the Shazami, but there are also like this awful, painful memory attached yep. to it. Um, that she and she's kind of conflicted of like, I can't let it go, but I want to let it go. But I, there's just this push and pull inside her that's really compelling, and and also just the notion of like, you know, they're using it as a schoolhouse now. She doesn't. She can't like pull the rug out from under them, um, and she sort and of Lang-Grish, uses that to defer the decision, right? She's like, "Well, if Martha says it's okay, then I'll do it." Yeah, and I love, by the way, this. First of all, <laughs> we should briefly mention the scene where Charlie goes to at. He basically goes to Seth and says, "Look, we know Martha would be okay with it. Can you just say that she say that you heard she was okay with it? Because you know, obviously, she won't care if there's a new schoolhouse or if it's the old right. one." And um, Seth is in the middle of rushing back off to to Stephen Hostetler. And as and we know, he's line. he's like again very single minded. The straight it. arrow, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there's that great line where he Seth tells him to like be quick. Yeah, and, says, and this your Charlie idea like really quick. <laughs> really draws it out. Yeah, is this is this what you consider quick? Um, very funny, but no, yeah, like I like it is it is surprisingly magnanimous of Langreesh to agree to build an entire new schoolhouse on his own dime. He must have a lot of money. He must have a lot of money, but he, like, you have to... What I... Again, this is why Langrish is an interesting character to me. You don't... His motives are still such a mystery, in the same way that he's a mystery to Al, he's a mystery to me. I don't know if he has some ulterior motives for doing what he does in this episode, or if he really does just want to build a theater and he is just willing to build a new schoolhouse out of the goodness of his heart. Well, one, I don't know. One wonders if he is not, he's not a Hearst rich person, but he maybe thinks a little bit like Hearst in that he likes to pay, maybe he likes to pay problems away. I don't know. And he may become a power player in the town in a way that it's not too dissimilar from like Sai, who's sort of not really a power player anymore. <laughs> and, um, and Al and, and Hurst and that he's, he has a thing he wants to do and he doesn't want people to interfere with it. Right. He hasn't established himself yet. So he hasn't gotten, to, he's sort of getting this, the scope of everyone. He's getting the, the, the vibe of everyone in the, uh, the town and he's scoping them out and he wants to be as peaceable as possible. And yes, yeah, sure. I'll whatever, whatever it takes to get my theater up. Once that theater's built, one wonders if that'll become a hotspot for drama or oh, whatever, yeah. right? Sure. I don't know, but so maybe he just wants to make that as smooth, that transition as smooth as possible, so that he can get up and running and build well, and the his, other thing, his his uh, his central centralized power base. I don't know. The other thing that is kind of important in this 
in this conversation is that he knows what happened in the Shazami because Al told yep. him. So when he approaches Joni, he is fully aware of what went down and what she did Very about true. it. So he is going to her. I think maybe he's approaching her with the assumption that she will want to be rid of it because of what happened. And that maybe he chooses the Shazami because he could choose, he could, he could ask to buy out any building, right? right. The Shazami isn't really different from any other building in Deadwood. Uh, unless, you know, unless he is completely genuine and there's just some specific magic he sees in it. But no, like it's, it's just another building. I think he sees in Joni or he is what he assumes in Joni is like, well, she's someone who has this building that she wants to get rid of probably. Well, but when he first approaches her, he has no attached. idea. Oh, that's well, okay. Maybe I'm misremembering the order of events. Yeah, he approaches her I, first and says, "You know, I misrepresented myself yesterday, or I, you, we, we, we got off on the wrong foot. Let's let's just start again." And then he goes to Al, and then he comes okay. back, and then that's when they make the final make the final decision. But it actually makes me wonder, right? So first of all, we get for the first time Al really commenting on who Joni is, and uh, what he concludes after some back and forth about you know technical details and explaining that background on her. Uh, he goes, yeah, she's all right, which is basically saying, actually, he thinks pretty highly of her, which, yeah, wow, <laughs> that's fascinating. <laughs> and it's cool, because like, as viewers, we do. But two characters who never interact yeah, for the record. but he's clearly observed her maneuvering and thinks, yeah, she's actually, seems solid. And obviously, while she's loyal to Sai, isn't like, isn't like Sai who he has no time yeah. for. Um, so, so I think that's cool. And, and by the way, the, I don't want to get, uh, I don't want to get off on a tangent on this. I just want to say, speaking of, of these female characters, the, the, the reason I highlighted Claudia uh, in this episode, even though I didn't know her name, is that um, she is, I think, an unique as a female character because she is neither a prostitute nor like an independently wealthy woman. She's sort of just yeah. like an unattached, unmarried woman who is an like a like a working person, um, which yeah. is unusual in the show because usually that that's not the case. Um, it's either like this, you know, weird employee relationship like with Aunt Lou, or there's these prostitute characters, or you have like Alma, who's just richer than God. So there's Jane is the but Jane Jane is the outlier. Jane, yeah, Jane yeah. would be an outlier. So like, true. but yeah, I think you're right that like you know, this is not a show that is. If if Jane wasn't there, I would probably be a little more accusatory in agreeing with you. I would say, well, I mean, you know, the female characters are well written, but it's they're all kind of like they all kind of you know they're they're either independently wealthy or they're prostitutes. Right. But I think the presence of Jane really fleshes out just what this show is saying about women in this time period, right. um, which we don't even need to get into because we talk about it all the time with Jane. Right, right, right. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's and and now we have great. I mean, Aunt Lou is a great character who's in a different position than a lot of these other women. Yeah, exactly. And now we have Claudia. It, it is. It is a, like a very subservient position in many ways relative to other characters. But it is, there but, is, there is, there are clear like distinctions but it is different, between. Yeah. And, and I would yeah. say, you know, what's, what's on Jane and Joni then in that sense, Jane has had to, I don't know that, well, it's partially intentional. She doesn't, she intentionally does not like socialize with people. She's not like, there's a lot of things about her that are intentional, but She's had to basically dirty herself up, dress in very non-traditionally feminine clothes, um, really lean into her um, uh, her military history, etc., to keep away the pull of what society expects of her as a woman. And I think that's cool. And obviously she used 
used. I don't want to say used, like she manipulated, but like she was part of Bill's Wild Bill Hickok's little friend group, which I think shielded her from like. So when are you gonna get married? What's your prospect? Friend, friend group. Sorry to interrupt. Friend group is a really funny way. Of <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to call them, Charlie. I think they would have called it a. They probably would have called it a posse, right? Uh, right, a posse. That would have been what they called it. But uh, but it's, but it, you're right. It means the same. What's thing. a chat it's room? Just, but like in to real me. life. <laughs> <laughs> a chat room. Even chat rooms an old. Like it's not a thing. All right. Anyway, yeah, we, don't have, um, we don't even have like forums anymore. Yeah, too. forums. Um, R.I.P. <laughs> so so and then you have Joni who's trying to leave. She's trying to move from one social cast into a, a completely different one, right? She is no longer a prostitute. She is not really a madam even anymore, which you could say is sort of like the peak of that social cast. She's just an independent woman who is not in any way connected to any men except for Psy, and that's like a fading relationship if, you know, we'll see how much longer it lasts. Um so you have this like mobility and these these, these characters. So uh, so anyway, I don't know that Claudia will be one of these characters, but she intrigues me. And they've spent a decent amount of time on her um, in in two episodes now. So I, I don't know where that's going to go, but I, I just wanted to point that out. Um, and then there's also, by the way, I don't have no idea if this is going anywhere. But there's also that woman that Farnham talks to in this episode, who we've never seen before, who seems like quite yeah, wealthy at the end of the episode. That. I don't know what that's about. Um, maybe she's nothing. Maybe she's like not related to like she won't be named or whatever. But worth worth flagging that up. Anyway, I know there's also Miss Isringhausen. Just and Isringhausen, yeah. There's another. There one. are lots of female characters. I don't want to get. I don't want to give the impression that like we're being too critical of like. <laughs> oh, there's not enough. Fe- there, there are so many great female characters on this. There show. are. It's something. Yeah, it's something. And we've there's a, about a there is a genuine variety. Yeah, and we've defended to other people as well. <laughs> Some people don't <laughs> do not feel that this show uh, does does that well, but I actually think it's it's quite good. Um. So yeah, what's uh? I guess. Oh, what I wanted to talk about was Al and Langrish. So, so not only does Al think, actually, she give, he gives a he he you know considers Joni to be solid. Um, he also is, I think he laughs for the first time in, you know, this is the third season. I don't think we've ever heard him laugh except like sarcastically. He actually laughs when Langrish makes it. Well, like it's like a, ha, it's a very like you know, stilted laugh, but it is a laugh, which we've not really ever seen from him when Lingrish makes the joke about him going as his second to go see Hearst, um, which I thought was really funny as well. So it's, it's, it's a cute moment. But again, he's just willing to do things and be so open with it. He has very particular and very serious plans he needs to accomplish. And yeah, he maybe he wants to dodge them because he's clearly feeling very insecure and emasculated by what happened with Hearst. But he stops with that, he stops that entire train of thought so he can sit down and talk to Lingrish because Langrish wants to talk to him. Like, he just is willing to rearrange his life to have a conversation with this guy. And again, it just begs this question of, like, what the hell is their relationship? I, I Except for being friends, but it just seems so not Al, you know? Yeah, I mean, Al... Al is... is, is in this episode, Al is, is very... <laughs> I don't even know. I don't. I don't know exactly how to put it. I mean, should should we? Can we talk about this final scene? Yeah, let's let's yeah, let's yeah. That's the I would say helps contextualize everything else. So this again, we have this moment where he's monologuing while Dolly is giving him a blowjob, which we've seen many many times on yep. this show. Um, Although here it's interrogated getting... a little bit as a concept. Exactly. Yeah. Like it is. 
I think it has been previously used in a kind of flippant way. Mm. Whereas like, isn't it funny that he, that this character is doing this very, uh, practice diabolical monologue about his plans while he's getting a blowjob. Right. Um, and again, again, I don't mean to be so like critical of that. I just think that that is how it was Look, used. We're critics, right? You could be critical. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just don't, I don't want, like, this is a fan podcast, right? Like, I don't want to. <laughs> it, it is not a fan podcast. We are critics just because is. we love the show doesn't mean it's not a critical podcast. We just critically love it. <laughs> sure. Um, but anyway, I, I feel like it is. It is nice to see that, like, inter- like you say, interrogated a little bit. Like, it's nice to see them kind of break it, break it off, and say, "What are we actually doing here?" And to have not just the show say that, but Al to acknowledge, um, because the whole concept of this scene is that he was so, just he is so distraught because he was held down from behind when Hurst cut off his finger, and how that right. reminded him of when, uh, when he was dropped off at the orphanage, his mother changed her mind and was calling for him from the ship and the person who ran the orphanage was holding him back yep. so that he couldn't run away and that that reminded him of, again it's like we don't we're learning a little bit more about al's backstory which i don't even think we necessarily need but it is nice to have it in this context oh yeah um it's really sad it's devastating it's so sad and ian McShane is so good just and it, what's great because it's devastating, but he plays it like he's furious. Yep. He doesn't play it for tears, even though I was like, I'll say it, I was getting a little. Oh yeah, no, for sure. Scene. Well, he doesn't it's play a beautiful it for beautiful scene. He plays it like he's furious because that's how he like has clearly learned to um, uh, express this. Um, you know, if this if therapy were a thing, he would be in it, right? Like he's just this obviously needs to be addressed. Instead, he takes it out on everybody else, and as he points out, he takes it out on the folks who work for him, um, especially the, the women who work for him. Um, but his eyes are watering as he's telling this story yeah. too. So like he's, he isn't playing it for tears and like, he's not like openly crying, but he is obviously covering the sadness with like this, this anger. So yeah. Yeah. Well, what's so, what's so key about this scene and what I think is like the re when I started to get teary is this, this moment where, when Al says, like, I guess I do that to you when I hold you down. Yep. Like, that guy was getting choked up because it is, for the first time on this entire show, Al is, Al, who owns this brothel for these women who, you know, we don't know the situation, but it is not obviously, like, I won't get into the, the politics of, of, of prostitution in, in this time period because I don't, I don't, I'm not a historical expert. Sure. I but think it's a Al fair is, guess to say that they're probably. I certainly, it's implica- implied that Joni, for example, was from like a. Like I mean, it's not child. even impl- Yeah, we know for a fact Joni was taken as a, as child, a child and yeah, forced into yeah. it. Yeah, um, and we can probably assume that that's also the case for a lot of the women under Al's employ. Exactly. Yeah. So this is this first moment on the entire show where he looks at one of these women and he sees her the way that he sees himself, like he sees the humanity in her, and Al is a guy who. It's not that he's incapable of seeing the humanity in other people, but he tends to kind of reduce people to what, like, what he can use in them. Yep. 
And what he can use in women like Dolly is, you know, for sex. And for the first time, he sees her as something beyond that. He sees, like, he recognizes himself in her and his own humanity in her. Right. And that's just, like, it's beautiful. Yeah. It is so... And it could. This is another example of, like, the show... This could have been so cloying. This could have been so, like, uh, uh, blatant and, and unsubtle. In, 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 in this moment of recognition, in this moment of like of Al finally seeing someone f- as a person. Um, but it, it what makes because what makes it great is not just that moment of recognition. It's when he says, I guess I do that to you when I hold you down. And she says, no. And he says, basically, you're I know you're lying. Right. Oh my god! I just don't even know what to say about yeah. it. It's just it's so good. It's it's this show just blows me away. It's a moment of like of real introspection and 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 some, you know, he's not going to win uh, uh, feminist icon of the year anytime soon. <laughs> Certainly not. But um, <laughs> but it is a moment of uh, at least at least a little bit of empathy as well. And I think that that's uh, it's something that's really remarkable. And you know, like it's not like we haven't seen empathy from Al in the past. As you know, clearly he has deep affection for for Jewel, uh, even if he's kind of awful to her, but not nearly as like he is to everyone else. Um, and that has to do with his brother. And, you know, it's clearly, you know, that you see this generational cycle of abuse that he's perpetuating. Certainly, let's not kid ourselves, but is, um, is made very clear that that is, that's where this comes from, that he isn't like, yeah, like con- contrast that. I think that's part of the reason that we find, or at least I find Psy to be a much shallower character. Um, yeah. Is that like we've been given no reason to, like, Psy just is uh, uh he's like farnham you know he's like farnham but just way better at it <laughs> farnham just sucks yeah. at being a uh, um a suck up and a kiss ass but like sai is decent at that but like we haven't been given any reason to believe that that was because of how he was raised or whatever he was just like no this is how i'll make money as far as we know um and that's well, just that's a very like, different there's... origin story there's two there's almost like you split up the types of like good character writing on this show into like the way Farnham is written is incredibly good character writing, but he is not like a very complex character. <laughs> no. <laughs> I love everything that comes out of his mouth. And I love the, just the notion of like the way that they depict his personality is so good, but he is not like, I would not, I would not write an analysis of like the, the deep shades of, of, of whatever in EB Farnham, like I would for Al. But then it's like Al you get you have that same thing where it's like you get him as a personality, but you also get him as I guess this is this is a distinction, right? It's like there's great writing of personalities and there's great writing of like people. Mm. And Psy is much more a personality. And again, this, you know, it really helps to have a great actor like Powers Booth who can just like just the way he growls certain words is so evocative and you just get who that guy is just the way, like I remember the thing that's still stuck in my head from last season is that moment where he sees Jerry and he goes, commissioner. <laughs> and, just like, and he like holds the last syllable and just like grunts. It's incredible. But it's like, like you say, Sai is not a particularly complex guy. He is just kind of who he is. Right. And we don't really need to know anything about his backstory. But, I, but what but makes Al so like central and why he's become, you know, he's like a TV icon, right? He's yeah. like, he's well surpassed the show as being like somebody that people reference as um, like Tony Soprano and like these characters, these people have sort of superseded their shows to become iconic in their own right. Obviously not to that level uh, because the Sopranos was like a 
cultural sensation and Deadwood was, you know, this weird <laughs> Western show. Mm -hmm. But, he, you know, if there's anybody who's immediately recognizable from this show, like, people don't, I'm, okay, I don't want to judge. If you got a Seth Bullock shirt, by all means, I have an Al Swearingen shirt, all right? That's what I have, <laughs> because that's what immediate, and I got that shirt well after I had seen the show, and I was like, yeah, I don't really remember, like, every detail of that show, but Al was amazing and i'm like that's what i identify with the show and so like it, despite an incredible cast of characters so like that's really what gives him is, is that this this incredible multi-dimensionality and you obviously can't do that with every character um and not every character has like a sad story right like as far as we know from seth we have we know a lot about his backstory but it's not really that sad his brother died but he didn't even really know him that well right and like that's pretty much it and like he likes someone that he can't be with because he's married his, his husband's you know uh, widow and whatever like that's his whole story it's not it's not tragic, but like Al's story is tragic as hell, and like they really built up his whole backstory, and um, and well, it's it's good because like they like you say they built it up. They don't come out in the first three episodes, and you know everything about his backstory. Right. What they what's good about this writing, and I think, and maybe just to tie into what I was saying earlier, because I think I'm kind of just realizing now <laughs> what's going on. Um, they build the personality before they build like the person. So you have a sense of who he is now and what he's all about. And then you can start getting the backstory and you're like, Oh, this is why he's like this. Right. So like, it's so clear who Farnham is. It's so clear who Psy is now that we're two and a half seasons in, I think like I wouldn't blink an eye if they started like doing little tossed off references to either of those characters backstories. Not that we need it, but it would, it, it wouldn't be as it, it would it would fit in into kind of the structure they've built around these characters. Um, I think a worse show would have led with all this stuff for Al. So you would have said, "All right, we know all this going in. Now we can depict this character." They depict the character first, right. and then they go back and say, "Well, all right, let's kind of hint at why he." And they like they don't even say they don't need to say, "And this is why he's like this," <laughs> right? They don't need him to say, oh, well, I guess, you know, I guess I just push people away because of my upbringing. <laughs> like, they, they let you listen to the story he tells and put the pieces together. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we get the closest we get to an explicit connection is, I guess I do that to you, right? That's what he says, and I think that that is And that's so, closest. again, it's just a beautiful line, and it's so succinct, and you just get everything you need in that one line. Yeah, and it's also really sad, too, because she says in an earlier scene uh, that she doesn't like... Um, she wasn't going to vote for Seth. She was going to vote for Harry Manning yeah. because he yells at you, which just is yeah, oh God, that's that so broke depressing. my heart. Yeah. Broke my heart. So depressing. Um, that doesn't really make much to do with Al's like growth. Or anything. I just thought that was really sad. Um, but yeah, no, and I also think, what's, I do want to just quickly point out, like she says, I don't like it either when they hold me down twice in that scene. Yeah. Cause the first time he doesn't hear her. God. Yeah. Yeah. Man. I, I, uh, it's just, <laughs> It just, it just, it just wrecks me. It really does. Yeah, no, it's ex it's exceptionally well done, and um, this was also more coherent. So, you know, speaking of how they've doled out this, I don't want to, it's not really an exposition, but like information on the backstories. You know, we've got some of these earlier, um, uh, some of the previous episodes discussed this, but it was mostly he was like drunkenly rambling, and it was kind of hard to understand what really happened. This was like one of the clear, like you could just see the boat, you could see everything that happened without even much description, partially because he's just really selling this moment. Yeah. Um, 
And so you just buy the whole thing and you really get a good picture of it. And um, I think this is, again, this has been one of the most explicit and clear connections to what's what's happened in the past. And I think that's been really, um, uh, it's what makes this final scene so so powerful. But how it connects to the rest of this episode is, you know, he keeps complaining that, you know, that, that the that she's she's changed her technique. That's why he he uh, he can't maintain an erection. Of course, we know it's because he's been completely emasculated by Hurst. And by the way, we've, we've learned he did lose a finger. So he is. Oh yeah, we didn't even. That's the first time we've learned specifically what happened to him. Exactly. So he's lost one finger, um, and it's great when he does that little finger wiggling thing to uh, uh, to Farnham uh, after after <laughs> meeting with Hurst. Um, and like, and Farnham can't do it because it's like it's a really weird thing to do with your fingers if you're not completely casted up. Um, but yeah, so we we finally see this, and we see that he's he keeps saying like, "Well, does he think I'm afraid? Does he think it's like?" But you are afraid. You are. But he really has to like build himself up to going into this meeting, and he I was very impressed with how willing he was to face off with Hurst because Sai is just completely he sees that Sai is just completely sold out. Um, and he just walks out of the meeting, and I was like, "All right, damn, that was uh, that's brave considering what he did to you last time." Um, yeah, and I, I also I just love this whole scene because I think uh, uh, the framing again is so clever. Um, in this uh, the scene where Sai and Hurst and Al are meeting, you have uh, uh, Sai sitting in a chair and Hurst standing up, um, and obviously you have this power differential in terms of in terms of you know, Hurst, who's not like a tall person per se, but he's just, he looms over Sai, who, you know, Powers Booth is a tall and sort of imposing figure, but because he's sitting down and because he's injured, he sort of seems more diminutive in the scene. And then you have Al, much, much smaller than Hurst because of the way the, sort of the angle of the camera, but he's crammed into the, against the wall, again, outlined by the, the frame of, I think, what was a door? I'm not sure. And he's like, trapped and separated from the other two like he is a very he's in a very different space from where they are uh even though again this is all the same room and it's all communicated visually in this in this opening shot so that was just fantastic um and i also just really like like personally obviously you're rooting for al uh because hearst is awful um and uh so i I really appreciated how he uh he just was like yeah this is the last time we ever speak so i'm out (laughs) and then just contrasting that like with how um, uh, Sai <laughs> just was like, "Yep, you're right. I'm your dog now. That's just the way it is." Last episode is uh, it's just again you get a really good feel for how different Al and Sai are. Yeah. Um. So anything else? I th- think that's uh. Let me just see. I think that's everything. Probably a little couple little things, but I don't really think there's anything else worth discussing. Yeah, nothing. That's that's the big stuff. Nothing huge. I mean, I like Trixie's uh, customer service. Um, she's great. <laughs> yeah, she's she, pretty great. She uh, she learned how to do numbers, but uh, interacting with customers is a whole other ball game. Um, <laughs> I I did like I did like this just for a bit of historical. Um, I'm look. I'm again. This is I'm going off of what the show is telling us, not what I've read. Because uh, I haven't, um, but uh, I like when there's uh, so there's this uh, this guy who doesn't want to put his money into the bank, um, and Trixie is not making not very convincing in terms of getting him to to she's like fine go somewhere else what do I care, um, and uh, and when Ellsworth sort of stands up and says like no this is the way the banks work and blah 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 this isn't you know the only way for her to prove it is to carry the mine around on her back 
Um, this isn't one of those two-bit operations where they're just going to like leave with all the money. And you realize that if anybody wanted to loan money at any point, it really was like just word. That's just yeah. people giving their word. And if it was somebody who came into town with their quote-unquote bank, it would literally just be like grifters who would just leave with the money. Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. wow. Um, so you can see his distrust. Like you get, you get the distrust, but it also puts in perspective like how badly a bank is actually needed. Um, which obviously we all use our banks all the time. Everyone does. That's how you function. Otherwise, you can't really get anything done. Um, and because uh, you need like somewhere to reliably put cash, for example. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and I just I just love that idea of like these like flimsy because we're so you know obviously we have some distrust of like big banks and stuff like that. But generally speaking, people are pretty confident that if I put my money in the bank, I can then take the money out of the bank. And that just wasn't a thing. It just wasn't something people could rely on at the time. And I think that that's just a fascinating state of affairs because we consider financial security to be so important. Um, so what that brings to the town is, uh, I think, uh, quite valuable. Yeah. Um, and the other, the other, uh, this is the last thing I want to bring up. Joni and Jane. Joni, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Joni says to Jane, so it was a bit sad because Jane's main concern seems to be the schoolhouse. But then she reveals when she speaks to Jane, that of course you're going to come wherever wherever I'm going, you, you can come with. Um, very sweet. And it's very sweet, but it's also, and I'm going to get, this, this is where I'm going to drop something I actually do know about. Um, it's also very biblical, mm. right? This is very Book of Ruth, if you know Book of mm. Ruth at all. Not off the top of my head. Not off the top of your head. Remind me. Um, so this is has been read. Uh, I don't, you know, for folks out there who are religious and, and don't ascribe to this or you aren't religious and don't care, you know, this is just some context from my world, but in the progressive Jewish uh, tradition, uh, the Book of Ruth is often read as a, um, uh, a queer story um, between uh, hmm. Ruth and Naomi, um, and there's this line where she says, "This is it's also, it's also the origin of our our conversion rituals. It's all premised." On oh, the Book this, of Ruth, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. And she says. Uh, for wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Uh, for your people will be my people, and your God will be my uh, and your God my God. Right. So basically, she's saying I'm going to completely convert and be part of your family, your whatever, and I'm going to follow you. And it has been read, has been read as like a a, a queer narrative. But regardless, here it is. It, it almost seems like it's directly invoking that in in just a, in a little bit, a little bit. And I, and I don't want to say that it's an intentional reference, but it does feel a lot like that. And the show is known for its biblical sort of allusions. So I'll just throw that in there. But it did. When she she was like, "You wherever I'm going to go, you can, you can stay with me wherever I go or whatever." It was it just felt it felt a bit like it was in that line. Um, so yeah, I thought that was kind oh, of a, it was a good a good moment. If Jane and Joni should start shacking up, I'm going to be. Very pleased. Um, <laughs> I've been waiting for that for a while. That would be the last thing I would expect from this show, because first of all, surely I would have heard about it by now. <laughs> but I would be, I would be pleased as punch uh, if that were to happen. Look, I mean, I, I don't know where it's going to go, but uh, I, I mm. certainly am, I'm pulling for it as well. Um, <laughs> I also, I'll tell you um, that it certainly, I mean, hinted at pretty. So far, it's been like it could definitely be a thing. Um, and also, I just love their their odd couple pairing. The other odd couple pairing I love is that Charlie and Joni are still friends. They've kept yeah. that up for three seasons. It's amazing. Yeah, I love it. It's a biz- again talk about bizarre. That's somehow even more bizarre than Jane and Joni. So, anyway, um, yeah. What do we have uh, next week? Uh, 
next week is called A Two-Headed Beast. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Um, directed by Dan Minahan, mm-hmm. our man, the Minahan man, <laughs> written by David Milch. It's going to be a good one. Yep, that's, I can already tell. That's uh, so he, he and he directed the film. So uh, perhaps we'll get some get a little bit more um, uh, hints at as, as to his motifs that we can look forward to see if he's he's maintained them for the past thirteen years. Or maybe he's picked up a few new tricks. Hmm. All right. So I'll uh, talk next week. All right. <laughs>